Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? I already know the answer. You're great. Look at the sun. Look at the sky, right? Uh, hopefully I can... Um, I know you're all focused on the weather, so hopefully I can get you in here for a few minutes and we can, uh, we can talk a little. And I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew 5 as we get started the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. And if you're a guest today, uh, just so you know what we're doing, uh, we're in a series right now called Blessed, uh, which is basically a study... <coughs> of eight statements Jesus uh, made in his famous Sermon on the Mount, statements known as the Beatitudes. And uh, with those statements, Jesus calls his followers, all of us, to a radical way of living, a way that runs contrary not just to the norms of, of culture, but the norms of human nature. Um, on a mountainside in Galilee, we're told one day Jesus sat down and began to teach his disciples and a large crowd of, a crowd of people. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And keep in mind, uh, our word blessed comes from a Greek term which means joyful or happy in terms of emotion, but implies much more than that. It describes an objective state of being. So he says, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, um, Jesus was saying that anyone who in genuine humility recognizes, recognizes their spiritual bankruptcy before God and embraces his offer of grace and forgiveness uh, in Jesus is welcomed into the kingdom of heaven because, as we learned, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And if you missed last week's uh, teaching, I encourage you to go online and listen because really uh, what Jesus says in, this first, in, this, in the first statement um, sets the foundation for everything else that follows. So if you missed it, you can go online and listen. But as we continue here in Matthew 5, verse 4, the next thing we hear Jesus say is this, blessed or happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now last week we noted how, um, in, in Jesus' opening statement, uh, how that would have really grabbed the attention of the crowd. It would have shocked people because in first century Israel, the concepts of happiness and, 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 and poverty did not go together, right? Just like today. The same is true in 21st century America. The idea of happy poor people just seems absurd. I mean, we would all be tracking with Jesus if he said, uh, if he said you know, happy are the rich or honored are the educated, favored are the beautiful, rewarded are the powerful. Those statements make sense to us. But um, happy are the poor? Not so much. Be honest about it, the idea of being poor in any sense, spiritual or otherwise, just rubs us the wrong way. I mean, we, have, we tend to, to react very negatively to the term poverty itself. And uh, as if his first comment wasn't startling enough, um, Jesus immediately introduces another concept that is equally as surprising and unfavorable, and it's the idea of mourning. And the Greek term used here refers to it refers to an emotional grieving, a lamenting, a weeping um, that not only, um, not, that, and not, not that only, it also implies this as a repeated action. It's an, this ongoing condition. So here's my, here's my Reiki translation. Jesus said, blessed or happy are those who repeatedly mourn. And, you know, our visceral reaction to this statement could in fact be even more negative than it was to the first because, I mean, really, who gets up out of bed every morning and says, I want to be a weepy, grieving, emotionally lamenting person, right? Who does that? So, it sounds like a bummer of a way to do one day, let alone a way to do life. You know, mournful, seriously, who wants to be that? The idea runs counter to our human nature and most definitely counter to societal trends because in our culture today, happiness is the ultimate goal um, and we make it a priority 
as Americans to avoid any level of mourning or sadness whatsoever. We, um, we've become addicted to finding new ways of experiencing feelings of euphoria and fulfillment, even if those feelings are short-lived. The motto is, laugh it up. Laugh it up, loosen up, live it up. Do whatever you need to be happy. A couple years ago, a young woman named Gretchen Rubin um, hopped on a New York City transit bus and on her long ride home did some personal reflection. And she, she asked herself, what do I really want from life? And she decided she wanted to be happy, but uh, like a lot of people, didn't know exactly what would make her happy. So uh, she committed herself to pursue what she referred to as her happiness project. And what became, um, what started as a, as a personal quest uh, turned into a New York Times and really an international bestseller and cultural phenomenon. She wrote her book, The Happiness Project. And now Ruben is considered America's happiness guru, offering all kinds of ideas and suggestions on how to achieve it. Uh, just recently, um, Harvard MBA and Walmart executive turned bestselling author Neil Pestrica published his new book titled The Happiness Equation, in which he provides nine secrets to happiness. And these two authors are not alone. I mean, if you go online to Amazon.com and you search the topic happiness, you'll be able to scan upwards of 15,000 titles listed in the subgenre of self-help books. I mean, the amount of literature being published and penned on happiness is just staggering and suggests that as a culture, we really believe happiness is achievable and it is our immutable right to pursue it. Darren McMahon a history professor at Florida State University, in his book, Happiness, a History, chronicles the evolution of happiness in Western thought and culture over the last 1,500 years, and he concludes, he says, as a culture, we obsess about happiness, and that may well be an indication we are not actually all that happy. Yeah. Uh, case in point, according to the latest Harris Poll, two out of three Americans say they're not that happy. Um, when Time Magazine recently explored our cultural pursuit of happiness, they found that, get this, 60% of Facebook users admit feeling worse about themselves and less happy after spending time online because it just seems like everyone else is more happy, you know? <laughs> if you're a Facebook person, you, you get that, right? Because people es essentially mainline their fun times, their perfect families, their new cars, their big houses, their gourmet foods, and their Hawaiian vacations, you know, right into our brains, and we experience happiness envy. Although 76% of Facebook users don't, they're not buying it, they don't really believe their friends are as happy as they portray themselves on their pages. I don't, in fact, I don't know if you've heard this terminology yet, but sociologists and psychologists are now writing and talking a lot about what they call the happiness backlash. What's the happiness backlash? It's, it's the, the idea that the more we strive for happiness, ironically, the more miserable we become. And so all that to say is happiness is a cultural obsession. And, uh, and then, look, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm all about happiness. I'm good with happiness. I'm good with people pursuing it. But does our obsession with it reveal an underlying reality? You know, that we need to laugh and find as many moments of joy as possible because if we ever slow down, take a serious look at our world and the human condition, we'll stop laughing and start crying. I don't know, Maybe. But what's fascinating to me about all this is that as our culture continues to fixate on and pursue happiness, the words of Jesus whisper divine wisdom to uh, those who will listen. He says, do you really want to know true happiness? It begins with mourning. I've yet to see that on the cover of New York Times bestseller, got to say. 
But that's what he says, you know. Blessed or happy are you who mourn, because you will be comforted. And again, it's just, it's just a bizarre concept, you know. It's a, it's a strange paradox. Happy are the sad. What does that even mean? Well, here's the deal. The kind of mourning that Jesus is describing here is not what we would consider conventional. Uh, in other words, he's not talking about individuals grieving the death of a loved one. He's not, he's not uh, talking about men and women who out of loneliness are crying for a relationship. He's not talking about people who are just stressed out by work and beaten down by the, the frustrations of daily life. He's not, he's not talking about that kind of conventional sorrow. Neither is he talking about what some people refer to as illicit sorrow. You know, the venal sobs of uninhibited pleasure seekers who cry because their latest passions have gone unsatisfied, or, or the professional athlete who's upset because he can't support his family on 10 million you know, bucks a year, just can't do it, or the sex addict who, whose latest escapade just wasn't all that great, or the guy with a throbbing hangover who weeps when he wakes and sees his life is still a wreck. Understand, the morning Jesus describes isn't conventional, it's not illicit, Rather, he's, what he's describing is, is sort of this, this spiritual, godly-type sorrow. It's a grieving. It's, a, it's an emotional brokenness that comes when we face the reality that we have sinned against the God who loves us. Uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes Christians in the church, and he, and he explains. He says, look, there's a, there's a worldly type of sorrow that, that leads to death. It doesn't accomplish much. But there's a godly sorrow that brings repentance. It leads to salvation. It leads to life. And it leaves no regrets. No regrets. This is what Jesus is talking about, you see. This is what he's talking about when he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, some of us may be wondering, okay, okay, but what, you know, what's the big deal? Why, why does Jesus say that, that mourning or godly sorrow is a quality of those welcomed into the kingdom of heaven? That's, that's confusing to me. And I get that. I, I, I realize it can be. And sometimes, I was thinking about it, sometimes I, the, the, the confusion comes if and when we, we reduce Christianity to a religious philosophy that says if you obey the rules, you're in. If you break the rules, you're out. And I don't know, I don't know if that's how you see it, um, but that's how, it's how a lot of people sees it, see it. And um, uh, it's just not accurate. It's not the case. Christianity is not, in essence, a set of rules and regulations. Uh, biblical Christianity is about, about imperfect, sinful people like me finding and experiencing intimacy with the holy God who created us. We like to put it this way around, around here. It's about grace, not guilt. It's about relationship, not religion. And, um, you know, we all need to understand that and be reminded of it periodically. Or think of it this way. Okay, confession time. A few weeks ago, uh, I got pulled over for speeding. Uh, I, I know I'm a wicked, wicked person. I, I, was, I was going 45 and a 30. I had no idea. All of a sudden, you know, behind me and uh, um, pulled over. Needless to say, I got a ticket. And uh, it was frustrating. It was a frustrating deal. I was mostly frustrated with myself for not paying attention. And, uh, you know, I'm just not having a really good time with that whole thing. And I look over. My wife was enjoying it quite immensely, really. <laughs> she had this big smile on her face like, you know, I told you to slow down. But she really didn't tell me to slow down. So uh, I just want to be clear on that. And also, 
make some suggestions here that when the driver's getting a ticket, the passenger should just be quiet, okay? So, uh, but here's the thing. Um, here's the thing. When you violate a rule like that, when you, when you get pulled over and you get a ticket, uh, you may be frustrated, yeah? Uh, or you may feel guilty that you got caught. But you don't lay awake at night grieving over it. You know, at least I didn't. Because it's just an impersonal village rule that I broke. There's no, no relational element to it. However, if and when we do in fact violate a relationship, if we hurt or betray someone who loves us and we say we love, then we do grieve. Because in a way we violated them. You know, They're wounded by our actions. They're broken up over it. And so we're broken up. And that's what Christianity is about, you see. It's about a relationship with God. And so when we disobey or we rebel against what he has said is right and good and healthy and safe and best for us as human beings, i.e. we sin, we haven't simply broken a rule. We have violated and betrayed the most loving and gracious being in our lives. And if that doesn't impact you, uh, if that doesn't grieve you, on a deep level, if there's no emotional response to that violation, I don't know, maybe there's a problem. Maybe something's wrong, because look, just as we tend to be suspicious of offenders who say they're sorry to victims but show no remorse, so it is with hearing sinners say we're sorry but show no signs of brokenness or repentance. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, happy are those who mourn. Those things go together, you see. Being poor in spirit is more the rational acknowledgement that we're spiritually bankrupt before God with absolutely no ability to redeem ourselves. We need, the, we need God's grace. And mourning is the emotional response to that reality. See, Christian, the Christian faith isn't just about affirming objective truth, but there's an experiential element to it. You know, so often we in the church go to extremes on this. So some of us see some of us see faith as primarily over here, you know, on the rational, intellectual deal on that side of things. Others live the opposite extreme and judge judge it in terms of emotionalism and subjective experience. But going to either extreme misses the reality that Christianity is both rational and experiential, both intellectual and emotional. That's who we are as human beings. It's both and. So think about it for a second. I mean, maybe you have uh, intellectually, cognitively affirmed your need of divine grace. You get that. It's true. But have you ever mourned over that? Have you ever grieved over an act or an attitude of disobedience toward God? Or are you just kind of flippant about it, you know? Do you view sin as a cosmic commandment you just didn't quite keep? Yeah, I know. I know what God says about this and that and the other thing. I get it. Yeah, you know, what I'm doing is wrong, and I know there are some things I should be doing I'm not. But nobody's perfect. We all know that. I mean, if that's our approach, then we probably need to be reminded that every time we disobey God by doing things we know we shouldn't or not doing the things we know we should, you know, we, we betray and violate the most precious relationship we have. We offend and wound the only being in this universe who's truly willing to, to love us unconditionally forever. And if you're not grieved by violating that relationship, you're just coldly indifferent, there may be reason to question the depth and sincerity 
of your faith. And you say, well, that's pretty harsh. Well, look, the, the fact is God is a personal being. He's not a set of rules and regulations. As our Father in heaven, he has committed to us in love and grace. And if we're committed our, we've committed ourselves to him, then we, will, then we do carry um, relational responsibility, don't we? I mean, responsibility to love and honor and, and respect and preserve the beauty and integrity of that relationship through, through obedience and faithfulness. I mean, consider this from a historical perspective. In the Old Testament, God committed himself to Israel, right? His chosen people. He said to them, basically said, look, I'm your God and, and you're, on, you're my people. I'm going to love you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to protect you. Uh, and all I ask in return is that you love me back. That you talk to me. You trust me. You obey me. You respect and worship me. You serve me only. In ancient Near Eastern, in the ancient Near Eastern word, world, that, that, those, those words were, that was covenantal language. Um, it, it was a... It was a relational agreement between God and his people, essentially. And because God is, is perfectly good and perfectly righteous, he always fulfilled his side of the commitment, his side of the relationship, but Israel didn't. You know? They often failed to keep their, their end of the commitment. They'd go off worshiping false gods, you know, will, willfully uh, sinning, rebelling, acting in, in reckless disobedience, and sometimes they just plain ignored God, like he wasn't even there. And that's why God sent some of the prophets to the people, to wake them up, to say, look, remember, God loves you, and, 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 and he's keeping his part of the covenant with you, but you're not. You're, you're violating your relational commitment to him. And in many instances, that message failed to have a spiritual effect because the people's hearts were, were hardened, and they just, didn't, you know, they just didn't care. Despite the warnings and calls of the prophets for them to repent and grieve over the messed up stuff they were doing, they simply ignored the prophets or, in some cases, killed them. They didn't want to hear it. During one particular season of rebellion, God went to a guy named Hosea, told him to do a really weird thing. God went to him and he said, look, I love my people Israel, I'm committed to them, but... Um, they're living in blatant disobedience. They're violating our relationship. They, they just don't care. So, so I want to teach them a lesson. And Hosea, I need your help in doing it. I want you to go to the marketplace. And I want you to find and marry a professional, immoral woman. You know, one who walks the streets and sells herself to any man who will buy her. Now, the text doesn't tell us Hosea's reaction. I can only imagine. You know, you want me to do What? You want me to marry who? You know, I'm, I'm thinking he had some reservations. You know what I'm saying? I'm thinking he had some. I'm thinking he was saying, Lord, I, I know I've prayed for a wife, but uh, I had something a little different in mind here. Uh, a little, you know, do you know how difficult that's going to be? Do you know how hard it's going to be to be in a relationship with someone with such a history and pattern of unfaithfulness and disloyalty? And God says, I know exactly what that's like. I wed myself to a people who are unfaithful and it hurts. But I've committed myself to them. I'm willing to forgive if they simply repent and mourn over their sin. So Hosea obeys. He goes out. He meets a woman named Gomer and he marries her. And they have three children. And it's, it really, it's an incredible story that you know, dramatically illustrates how God feels about sinful people. But uh, that's not all the story to the story. Because after a time, Hosea's wife leaves him. She goes back to the marketplace, turning tricks from guy to guy, 
bed to bed, finding anyone who'd pay the price to be with her, and it just broke Hosea's heart. It just broke him to pieces because he, he loved this woman. And God goes to him a second time, and he says, I want you to go get her. I want you to go search for her, and I want you to open every bedroom door if you have to, but you wanna, I want you to find her, and when you do, you pay the man that she's with, and you buy her back, you redeem her, you graciously forgive her, bring her home, make her your wife again. And I got to think, Isaiah's saying, Lord, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was one thing to marry this woman. It's another to go chasing after her when she took off on her own volition. She violated our relational vows. And as crazy as it sounds, I love her, but, but she's betrayed me. Don't you understand that? And God says, yes. I absolutely understand it. My people betray me all the time. I adopt them into my family. I listen to their prayers. I extend grace and mercy. I redeem them. They come into relationship with me, and then suddenly they'll ignore me or wander off, leave me behind, go back to their old ways. They have affair after affair after affair with things of the world. They don't seem to give a rip about what they're doing to themselves or to me in our relationship. They don't seem to care. And I certainly understand the pain of betrayal all too well. But I still love them. As crazy as it seems, I still love them, and I will search for them no matter where they go, no matter what they do, and I will open every door until I find them, and I will again offer forgiveness. And it's not just an issue of intellectually affirming what they've done. I just want to know that in a deep way, they, they fully understand what has happened. I want to know that they're broken over the betrayal, because without mourning, there is no true repentance. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness, or as Jesus put it, Blessed are those who mourn, who deeply understand the impact of their sin and unfaithfulness and grieve because of it. They will be comforted. They will be forgiven. They will experience true, lasting happiness. And in a sense, in a sense, Jesus was, was posing this question. When we sin, I mean, when, when, we, when we willfully go against what we know God says is right and good and healthy and just, and best for us as human beings. And who knows that better than God himself? When we willfully violate those things, when we sin, do we really understand who we've betrayed, who we've offended, who we've wounded? Because listen, if you've never grieved over disobedience, if you think of sin as, as just an occasional oversight of some cosmic commandment, then you may not have a genuine relationship with God. I mean, it's possible. Because, I mean, look, if any of you could go home today to your husband, to your wife, to your father, to your mother, your son, your daughter, and willfully violate that person's trust, hurt them, betray them, and callously then thumb your nose at them, we, I think all of us in the room would agree, then you probably don't really care much for those people. You may live with them, but you don't love them. Because when you love somebody, when you're in intimate relationship with someone, and you violate them, when you break their heart, it breaks yours. It devastates you. And you mourn over what you've done. You weep, you grieve, and you say, please, please, forgive me. And the same is true with God. Christianity is not about uh, you know, religious rules and regulations. It's about a relationship with a loving, gracious, and holy creator of this universe. And when we sin and betray that relationship, we wound him. We break his heart. 
So the issue, the issue is, um, have you come to an intellectual and an emotional realization of what sin has done? What you have done, what I have done. Because if so, you'll know it. If so, you'll know it. I mean, David knew it in the Old Testament when he committed adultery and murdered somebody to cover it up. When he, when he was confronted, he fell on his face and for six days and nights, laying in the dirt, he wept, he fasted, he grieved, and he prayed, Lord, forgive me. Do not leave me. Peter, just prior to Jesus' crucifixion, denied even knowing him. <laughs> and then he ran off out of the courtyard and he wept because he was devastated that he had betrayed his friend and Lord. One day a woman who's a prostitute heard that Jesus was having dinner at the home of some religious leaders in her town and she went and she found them and she went in the house and she fell at Jesus' Jesus's feet weeping and she began to wash his feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair and she poured perfume on them and all the religious people sitting around the table, all the good rule keepers said, hey man, what's up with that Jesus? Don't you know who this woman is? Don't you know what she's done? And to all those people, Jesus said, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Here's my Reiki summary of that. Christianity is not about rules. It's about a relationship with God. And Jesus' message is this. When a person is crushed and heartbroken over sin, and they mourn, they weep, they seek forgiveness, they'll find true and lasting happiness because those who mourn will be comforted, both now and forever. They will know peace and rest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, just, just to be sure we're clear on this, okay, um, mourning, mourning doesn't earn you God's rescue. It doesn't earn you anything. Your tears, uh, your tears don't function as some kind of act of penance worthy of a reward. It's not human sorrow that affects our rescue. Only the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf brings about the potential of forgiveness. It's grace through faith in Christ that leads to eternal life. The mourning, you see, is simply gives evidence that we understand in a deep place we understand what sin has done to us, to our relationship with God, what it's done in our world. It, reveal, it reveals our remorse to God and our love for him. And that's why Jesus said, happy are the sad. Now I realize, uh, look, I realize we're all coming from different um, backgrounds and experiences. We're all, we're all at a different place in our spiritual journeys. So I just want to make sure everyone gets included in the application here because I, in, a, in a group this size, I'm pretty sure that there are some of us here who have never really mourned over sin. Never really have. You know, we've been running from God. We've been doing our own thing. We've been working our way around the marketplace, keeping busy, laughing as much as we can because we fear if we stop we're gonna, we're gonna, and face the truth, we may cry. But God says, I know you've been running. I know you've been running. I know where you've been. I know the stuff you've been doing. But I love you, and I'm waiting for you, and I'm willing to commit to you for all eternity if you just simply mourn and confess and humbly receive forgiveness through Jesus. Do it, and you'll find true happiness. You will be comforted. Some of us here are relatively new Christians. You know, we've just recently figured it out. We've come to grips with our spiritual poverty, you know, finally realizing our good works earn us nothing, nothing. 
And so we, as a result, we've put our faith in Jesus. We've embraced and welcomed the grace of God that comes through him. We've asked for him to forgive us. We've experienced his grace, but we're struggling because, you know, we've experienced some setbacks. You know, uh, some old habits have creeped in. Certain sins are hanging on, and we know, we know that we've already been unfaithful to the God who loves us. To which I offer this advice. Not if, but when we sin. And the Spirit of God convicts us of it. Grieve it. Grieve. There are four words I hope everybody in this room is familiar with. Lord, I am sorry. We say it and we mean it. And then there are some of us who've been Christians for a long time, you know, been around the church for a while. And, uh, and maybe that initial mourning, that, that initial sorrow that we once knew has somewhere, somehow, someway transitioned itself into a, a, a cold, callous indifference. The tears have dried up. Maybe you figure, hey, you know, I'm not involved with any spectacular sins. Yeah, there's a few small ones around, ones I can easily conceal from the people near me, but look, you know as well as I do, you can't conceal them from God. You can't. The twisted thoughts, the, the acts of unkindness, the attitudes of racism and bigotry, the words of malice and gossip, the criticism, the, the, the arrogant selfishness, the unwillingness to serve, the pride, the greed, the, the deceit, the evil things we do, the right things we refuse to do. God sees it all. And every one of those things violate our relationship with them. They are acts and attitudes of betrayal. And you say, yeah, I know, but does it bother you? See, does it bother you? Does it break your heart because you have broken his? Listen, my, my prayer for all of us, myself included here, is that God's spirit would, would, would be with us in a, in a powerful way and if necessary, point out to us those things in our lives that need to be confessed. Big things, little things, you know, uh, blatant things, concealed things, whatever. And that with humble and mournful attitudes, each of us will say to God, Lord, I'm sorry, I've broken your heart. And uh, I don't want to violate our relationship. I don't want to betray you. And I know you don't want that either. Forgive me. You see, there's a, there's a great big world outside these walls. And uh, just, it's just waiting for you guys. In a few minutes, you're going to walk back into it. And it's going to say to you, hey, laugh it up, loosen up, live it up. Find some way to be happy. But God says the only way to know true happiness, the only way to experience eternal comfort is by facing and dealing with the painful reality of our sin. And, and, and I don't know for sure, but there may be some of us here this morning who need to have our hearts broken. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So I want to ask Donnie and the band to come back up on the stage, invite them to come back up. And um, as, they're, as they're coming what we've done is we've, we've carved out uh, some time that provides an opportunity for all of us uh, to be honest, to be gut-level honest with ourselves and with God, uh, and to quietly think and reflect and pray 
And if need be, mourn and repent of the things that we've done or are currently doing or things that we've failed to do. Things that have betrayed the one who loves us and who through Jesus graciously offers forgiveness to all who humbly ask and grants comfort. You can, you can, you can pray in your seat. You can pray standing. You can come, come forward if you want. It's up to you. We just want to give you the space to do it. So I, I feel compelled just to, to get us started and to pray, and then uh, we're going to just let you be, okay, for a while. So Lord, it, it is hard for us to hear these words and to, to deal with what is true, that we tend to be betrayers, unfaithful to you, our God. And I just pray that in, in these moments that we have, that faith wouldn't just be this cognitive thing that we believe, but it would also be something we feel, we experience, and may the truth of our sin break our hearts. And we seek your forgiveness, recognizing that your arms are open, ready to receive us and forgive. So um, I don't know exactly uh, how you're going to respond to all this. I'm, I'm guessing when Jesus spoke these words, there were people that got up and walked away and said, man, I don't want to hear all that. I came here to hear something uplifting. You know, I'm done. I'm walking away. And, um, but the thing is, Jesus, Jesus didn't come to just tell people what they wanted to hear. He came to tell them the truth. The truth is we're just, we're broken creatures and, you know, for so long, um, leaders and, and uh, politicians and have all told us that we can, we can solve the world's problems if we just have enough money, enough policies, enough rules, enough education. We'll solve humanity's problems. No more crime, no more wars. All the, it hasn't worked because we don't deal with the core issue, and that is our, our own sin and brokenness. And Jesus came to tell us the truth. And, you know, we talk about the good news of the grace of God. Before good news, you've got to get the bad news, right? And the bad news is we cannot earn our way in to heaven. Can't do it. We need God's forgiveness. That's the good news. He offers it. And that's what it means to be a Christian. It means to embrace that, to follow Jesus, and to understand you have a relationship with the creator of the universe, not a list of do's and don'ts and wills and won'ts and regulations. He is real. He's, a, he's the creator of the universe who can be wounded and broken because of his love for us. And so um, the promise is those who mourn, those who recognize that, will be comforted. So... If uh, you're here this morning and you, you, this is a kind of a new deal for you, it's something you, you know, you're just kind of trying to wrap your brain around. If you want to talk to someone more about it, talk to someone you know from the church or you can come forward. Some of our prayer team folks will be down here. You can speak with them or maybe it's been a rough week and you just, you, you're kind of heavy and uh, feeling really heaviness and there's some things you just need somebody to pray with you about. They're here for you as well. Okay, why don't you stand with me and then we're going to be dismissed. <clears throat> so let's pray. Father, as, as the church leaves the building, as we go back out into the world, it's going to tell us 
to pursue happiness in whatever way, what it will fail to tell us is how happiness is really experienced both now and forever, and that is by acknowledging ourselves to you, our sin, and, and receiving your forgiveness and grace. And I pray that in knowing that this week, that we would live lives of joy uh, and comfort and, and peace, and we would live in such a way that we would point people to you, the God who loves them. So thank you for the time together this morning. I ask that you bring us back next week as we continue to consider what Jesus' words, as hard as they may be, they're words of truth, they're words of life. And so now may your hand of grace and peace and comfort rest on your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.